Welcome to the 230th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. If we are to truly see the majority of our farmland soil managed in a way that builds long-term resiliency, there are a couple of statistics we need to keep in mind. For one, around 40% of the 911 million acres of farmland in the contiguous United States are rented. That means on those acres, a farmer does not own the land being farmed, but rather is making lease payments to a landowner for the right to produce crops and livestock. More than half of the nation's cropland is rented, and a quarter of the pasture land is. And here's another important number. 80% of rented farmland is owned by non-operating landowners. Non-operating landowners are people who are not active in agricultural production. Perhaps they inherited the land, and may not even be living in the same county or even the same state as where their farm is located. Since a key part of the Land Stewardship Project's work centers around helping farmers establish practices and systems that build soil health in the long term, we are keenly aware of the importance of reaching out to landowners who are renting real estate out to those crop and livestock producers. After all, if the owner of the land hasn't bought into the importance of creating long-term resiliency through regenerative production practices, even the most stewardship-minded farmer faces a major roadblock. Landowners who lease out their acres must be made aware not only of the importance of good stewardship practices, they must also be given the tools and resources needed to work with the farmers that rent from them. How does one write up a lease that includes requirements for practices that protect and build soil? What government programs are available that can support putting in place such practices? What economic and management challenges do farmers face in adopting these practices? And perhaps most important of all, how does one go about having what can often be a difficult conversation with a renter around issues like conservation, profitability, and the need for making change? LSP has been developing fact sheets, a toolkit, and other resources for non-operating landowners who are interested in having good stewardship practices on the land they rent out. We've also been holding workshops and one-to-one conversations with landowners, as well as farmers who are renting or are seeking to rent. Our goal is to create a culture where landowners and farmers can develop the kinds of relationships that go beyond just an exchange of cash and become a way for them to work as stewardship partners. Land Stewardship Project organizer Robin Moore, who is based in our office in Montevideo, Minnesota, has been deeply involved with this work. I recently chatted with Robin about why LSP believes it's so important to work with non-operating landowners and the exciting role soil health can play in helping forge deep connections between them and their renters. She also talked about the challenges these landowners and farmers face, particularly when it comes to issues like gender politics. Robin started our conversation explaining just exactly what a non-operating landowner is. Non-operating landowners generally fall into two primary categories. One of them are retired farmers who used to farm and no longer farm but still own the farm and, and use that land for their primary income, or people that have inherited land. They're family used to be farmers, but now it's a couple of generations removed. Um, So it could be children of farmers. It could be siblings. Um, Often it's partners where one partner passed away and the other person inherits basically the management of that land. So those are the main two groups of landowners that we run into. Um, I haven't worked much with anybody that owns land as an investment property, mostly working with farmers and inheritors. Uh, Why do we care about this group of people? Why is this important to both, I guess, some of our mission around land stewardship, but as well as kind of rural economic development? 
if we are really focused on landscape change for sustainable communities, for water quality, for climate change, we have been talking to farmers because they're the ones that are doing the practices. But the truth is, is that at least 50% of the acreage in Minnesota is rented land. Ultimately, it's those landowners that have control over that land. The other piece of this is through my work with the Chippewa 10% Project, I worked with a lot of farmers and they were gung-ho to, to do no-till or cover crops or great practices on their own land, but they would say they wouldn't do it on their rented land. And I realized that there was that there was some blocks there. There was some miscommunication or blocks and that we really needed to be talking to landowners. Yeah, that's a really, really, and I've heard similar statistics from other Midwestern states of how much land is being rented right now. It's, it's pretty major. Give me a little bit of a, a rundown of what this reaching out to these folks, what that entails, and how maybe it's different, a little bit different than uh, when we reach out to beginning farmers or we reach out to other groups kind of thing. What, what is it that you're kind of trying to do right now? First of all, this is a group that doesn't really self-identify. You know, like people know if they're a farmer. People know if they're a beginning farmer. or But, you know, you say non-operating landowners and there isn't a cohesive group of people that are like, oh, yes, that's me, because we haven't been addressing them as a group. So part of this is just getting people to think of themselves as non-operating landowners and as a non-operating landowner having some agency and responsibility to be part of soil building, sustainable farming, strong rural communities. We, I mean, we've done some large-scale workshops where we kind of bring in anybody that self-identifies and then we also do kitchen table workshops which is um, when somebody that's been to a workshop basically says, I have several neighbors that I think that this would be a really good conversation to have with them, and then we meet at their house with a smaller group of people. And what's, what's some of the questions like that they come up with right off the bat or some of the issues that they really, uh, you can tell that that's, that's something they've really just not been able to get answers to? It, with the kitchen table, mostly people come in not being sure even why they're there. They know that their neighbor asked them to come, and they know that it's because they own land, but they really don't know why. The first thing is sort of mending that that disconnect that has grown between landowners and the land. One of the reasons why there are so many broken pieces in our agricultural systems or environmental systems or our food systems is that disconnect that has happened in agriculture, the disconnect between the consumer and their food source, Mm -hmm. Um, also the disconnect between landowner and what's happening on their land. That is the norm. That is kind of how those relationships are expected to be. So when people are coming into these um, small kitchen table meetings, they've they've become, that's what they're doing. They have this disconnect between the land and what's happening, (laughs) between themselves and what's happening on the land, and that is what they've been told it has to be like. They don't even think that they have a right to talk to the farmer or that they should talk to the farmer. And so after we, they kind of start to realize that, oh, this makes sense to talk about and think about. Then it starts rapid fire questioning on how how do I start this conversation? What's going to happen if I bring this up to my farmer? How do I ask about this? Who can I talk about this for other resources? What should I be learning about? And questions are a lot about that sort of the early access points of just understanding what's happening in farming and who to talk to and what words to use so you don't get brushed off immediately. It sounds like uh, just trying to helping them realize they have agency. 
that's the biggest part, and that's actually the most fun part. I mean, it, they, this is a group of people, um, a lot of them are women, that have just come to think of themselves as not having any power or agency in this mm-hmm. equation. And once they realize that they really do have some power and agency to make really cool and exciting and soil-building things happen that support their values, they get really excited. And the great thing about these workshops and kitchen tables versus like talking to somebody on their own is they're with a group of people that are caring about the same things and kind of struggling with some of the same issues and so they are able to support each other in acting on that agency in a way that's exciting it's like a you know it's a it's a landowner's club yeah well and that, speaking of club <laughs> including good old boys clubs and all that it's no secret that agriculture has been and is dominated by men, both not just in the production end of it and the farming end of it, but agencies, the input suppliers, the the whole whole infrastructure is very male dominated. That must be a huge barrier to get over, or a, a huge challenge for them to to deal with. It's intimidating, and um, I have heard many many stories, especially when a spouse dies. So it's a more mature woman being dismissed by their renters by being told. I can't do that. That doesn't happen here. That doesn't make any sense. You don't know what you're talking about. Those aren't the only stories I've heard. I want to be really clear that renters aren't bad. I came to this work from farmers wanting to do good work and not being able to do it on their rented acres. Mm -hmm. So half of this work is really advocating for farmers as well with landowners. Many farm owners at field days have said, I've heard them say, I wish my landowner would come. And that's one of the reasons why we're working on doing this. So I want to make sure that we're not we're not throwing um, farmers under the bus. <laughs> but it is true that um, there are bad actors out there. And it's hard. It's hard to change to conservation practices. That's the other thing. Like, we're not asking them to, like, bake a different flavored cake. Mm-hmm. We're asking them to change a lot of equipment and practices. And that's hard. And it takes time and support. And that's one of the things that we're really working on is helping build that communication and relationship so so that the farmer is heard, so that the landowner is heard, and so that they can work together to meet goals for the land and not change everything next year. But back to, back to women, it is harder for women. They don't have the right vocabulary, mm-hmm. which makes people dismiss really quickly. If you call something like, you know, sustainable organic farming versus versus soil building practices, they're going to get two totally different reactions. It's also just about having the confidence that you have the right and um, support to talk to an unfamiliar male. That, That just might be intimidating in itself. And yes, it is hard because in the agencies, they don't always have a lot of women, but more and more they do have women. More and more they're becoming aware and sensitive about these things. And it's through our support of each other and pushing into those conversations that we're going to make it better. The last thing I want to say about that is, yes, <laughs> agriculture has been a male-dominated arena and uh, a good old boys kind of general attitude, which isn't, isn't supportive for um, male non-operating landowners who haven't been in farm management either. It can be really intimidating or... Um, you know, you don't want to look dumb in front of other guys. And so this 
the same reason why it's so important for women, it also gives knowledge and access points for male non-operating landowners as well. So, Robin, that brings up, uh, you mentioned this, alluded to this earlier, but a really good, I guess, point of conversation or kind of pivot point, a a way to kind of uh, root all of this, if I can use uh, an analogy that connects to this, is soil health. We have really been focusing, I know, on these in these workshops and in your kitchen table conversations on this issue of soil health. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important? That seems to be really, I've been to a couple of these workshops and I've talked to some of these folks and they really are kind of connecting with that. And I know a lot of the farmers out there who are renting land are really, uh, right now, it's still a very hot topic for them and something that they can really relate to. But uh, talk about why that's such an important connector there. When we're working on building a landowner's agency, building a landowner's um, feeling of confidence to be able to engage with their renter around soil building practices or changing their lease or what, how their land has worked, there are things that they can do to get ready for those conversations. And one of them is self-education. And we all are busy. We all have limited time resources. I tell them that the most bang for your buck on time spent learning about something is soil health. And the reason for that is, A, soil health is the best framework to understand how commitment to soil building in the long term improves your financial asset, it improves the land for the farmer and what they can possibly get in yields or reduce in inputs, it improves the land for habitat and wildlife, it helps meet a lot of the goals, and it's how we talk about it in the long term. It is also the science base in understanding what farm practices make sense and why these conservation practices are good for soil health in the long run. Understanding that science will help guide decisions that you make or support with your renter. And I will say it again, it's the most efficient resources spent on self-education to make this make sense and make conversations with your renter go smoothly. One of the things that really ties in nicely with is with our soil health program, one of the challenges they run into is farmers show up to these workshops who are leasing a fair bit of land and they're like, boy, I'm really interested in these issues, but I know some of them have said, yeah, I'll put them in place on the land I own, but I'm not that interested in putting it on the land I rent because I may not have that lease in a year or two. And these these are practices that take three, maybe more years to kind of start to show results. So so this really ties in nicely, it sounds like, with that. Uh, if you can get your landowner on board on this, then it does give you an incentive to build soil health on land that you're renting. Yeah, the primary barriers from a farmer's point of view of, of getting soil practices on rented land are one-year leases, leases that are handshakes instead of written, and perception of the practices as either messy or untidy or just a broken relationship between a renter and a landowner like them not having the the practice or the capacity to talk to each other about things do you have an example or two of somebody you've worked with so far or who's been to a workshop who's been able to kind of take this and and do some different things with their land that maybe uh, and kind of follow up with some of their long-term goals of seeing their stewardship ideas uh, actually put into practice? Yeah, we had um, just recently, we had a workshop um, in March. A gentleman that came to that workshop, he owns large tracts of lands. He had been a dairy farmer, but he had not thought about putting 
conservation into his lease. He had had some sort of frustrating conversations with previous renters, but he really hadn't followed through and just figured that's the culture of, of renting. Mm-hmm. This workshop really gave him some something to think about, plus examples of, of leases that we have available. And he went and he went to his lawyer and he drafted a, a, a lease and talked about it with his renter and they're moving forward on it. And mm-hmm. It um, really outlines some of the things he values and makes makes some space for conversations. There's a piece in there on how they have to talk at least three times a year. You know, just some basic ground rules to, to build a better connection between those two people and a better connection with him with what's going on with the land. It's all about building relationship. That's mm. that's. One of the things I hammer on the hardest, community makes opportunity. And when you're building community, and that is talking with your renter, speaking with your landlord, it makes opportunities for soil building, among others. So another really great example um, is Jeannie Hill, and she came to a workshop. She had had a situation where her renter was, was not responding to her requests, and she, through our workshop, felt empowered to really act on it made a connection through a local soil and water conservation district office, um, went with that with that male-bodied person to talk with her renter and decided to change renters. Through her relationships with people in land stewardship projects, she then connected with a beginning farmer, and now they're both delighted, and it's kind of a Cinderella story. I always want to emphasize that that's the last thing we're advocating for is to get rid of your current renter. We're working on rebuilding those relationships. Sometimes that needs to happen, and that's another thing that LSP can bring to the table is connections with farmers that do have really strong conservation values. Some of the resources that LSP has, besides me, I'm dedicated staff to talking about this. Anybody can call me, and we can work out a strategy for you on how to start addressing <clears throat> what's going on on your land. But we also have an online conservation lease toolkit, and in there, there are tips for difficult conversations. There's a primer for how basic farming practices work on the land and why. Um, there's an acronym list. We have conservation lease examples Um, They're not templates. You should never just fill in the blank on a lease, but we have examples of grazing leases, uh, organic vegetable leases, and a cash rent lease. We also have some legal um, frequently asked questions and other resources. That's online. And finally, I'm also available to do a kitchen table where you are. If this really strikes a chord and you'd like to bring a group of people together, give me a call. The challenge of getting involved with this work is it seems so daunting and so overwhelming but it sounds like you're actually having a lot of fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's so much fun to take people who aren't even sure why they're, why they're really there or who are feeling really discouraged about having any agency and then kind of lighting them up. But they, they can do something. There is community around this. There are people that can support me. And they get excited. And it's so it's so much fun to see those light bulbs come on and then the fireworks firing and it's been only positive. The Land Stewardship Project has fact sheets and numerous other resources available for non-operating landowners looking to get soil-friendly practices established on their farmland.
Our Conservation Leases Toolkit is a great place to start. To obtain a copy, call Robin Moore at 320-269-2105 or check it out online at www.landstewardshipproject.org. On our Conservation Leases webpage, you can also sign up for regular updates on ways of developing stewardship-based rental agreements. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.